The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. Scripture reading this morning is Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. If you're using the Bible underneath your chair, it's on page 823. If you would stand with me for the reading of God's word. Luke 16, starting in verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame." But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Well, here we are. We are nearing this this third section, this third theme of what Luke is explaining to us about what it means to pursue Christ uh, because of who he is and what he came to accomplish and the salvation we know he will accomplish as we look at the back half of Luke's gospel. We've been in this theme that's been all about salvation and What are the identity? What are the number? How can you describe and think about the people who are pursuing Jesus? Well, Jesus, as we've seen and we'll say here shortly, has been giving many parables to help explain the idea of what's going on in regards to this idea of repentance, turning from sin and turning to Christ in faith for salvation. And now we've come to a parable, a more famous parable of Jesus, the rich man and the poor man named Lazarus. Our sermon title today is called Highway to Hell. Um, Not only is this an ACDC song for those of you of a certain vintage, um, but this is also an appropriate title for this morning's sermon because the main idea really is this. Jesus is now going to stress the reality of hell. He's going to stress the reality of hell, the eternality of hell, the irreversible nature of hell. But the question that we're going to get into here in a moment is this, is like how does 
someone go to hell. Jesus, as we're going to see here, isn't just throwing random things about heaven and hell out there in front of people. There's a very clear reason why Jesus is giving the parable that he's giving right now. There's a very clear reason why this is the appropriate time for Luke to put this parable in front of us in light of everything we've been seeing about the answer to the question, will those who are um, well, those who are getting into the kingdom, will they be few? And Jesus says, you need to strive. You need to receive the invitation to my eternal royal banquet. It looks like wholehearted following. I'm in the business of seeking and saving the lost, lost sheep, lost coin, lost sons. We've been seeing how God's agenda of salvation is embraced by some, but it is refused by many. And the question is, what happens to a person if they choose to remain in unrepentance till the day that they die? What is going to happen to them? And that's really where this parable comes into play this morning. So before we dive into the text, before we turn to these words of Christ, what we need is to pause and pray. We need to ask for the Holy Spirit to come and move in power, right? To take these words, to open them so that we can understand them, give us eyes to see, minds to understand. You hear me use this phrase a lot, and this is, I'm saying this so you know how to pray a little bit more clearly for yourself and for others and your Jesus family. It's been a while since we've seen one another. It's been about six days and 22 hours. And a lot of life has happened for many of us. Some of it's have been high and some of it's been low. Some of it's been good and some of it's been bad. And in the highs and in the lows, if we're not careful, we can just lose our sight of Jesus, yeah? And so as we gather here this morning, what we need is not for just the mere words of a man to just echo throughout the sanctuary for the next 40, 45 minutes. What we need is the Holy Spirit to tune these words, to tune our hearts so that we can receive and understand what's being said here. This is a weighty subject matter. It's not something that we should approach lightly. And so we just need the Spirit of God to move, to give us eyes to see and ears to hear. And so that's what I'm going to encourage you to pray for as we go to prayer right now. Lord, will you move? Will you use me? as an instrument in your hands to proclaim your words. We don't need just the mere words of, of Pastor Jonathan. What we need are the words that come from your lips, given to us for life and godliness. We need you, Holy Spirit, to empower the preaching of the word right now so that way we can have eyes to see Jesus and a mind that understands these scriptures and to wrestle with these truths before us. In other words, we need you, Holy Spirit, to be the Spirit. I cannot be the Holy Spirit. So we are casting our time right now and trusting it to you so that when all is said and done, we can leave here this morning saying, man, I met with Jesus this morning because Jesus was preached. Jesus was exalted. God's word was made clear and the Holy Spirit guided me, helped me to understand and grasp these things. 
Jesus, it's in your name I pray these things for your name and for your glory. Amen. If you've lived long enough, if you've seen enough movies, if you've watched enough TV, then you have heard phrases like these, or maybe you've even said a few of them yourselves. Why don't you get the hell out of here? Shut the hell up. Oh yeah, why don't you go to hell? Hit your finger with the hammer. Man, that hurt like hell. Or maybe you're just excited and you fist pump. You're like, hell yeah. Friends, when you hear phrases like these, what you can begin to understand and the truths you can begin to draw is that our world has a very low view of the idea and the reality of hell. For many, hell is just a word that merely exists to be used in a turn of phrase. When people are saying, go to hell, shut the hell up, get the hell out of here, like I, I, they, I, I'm positive they don't fully grasp the reality of what they're saying. It's just words to them. For some, they grasp the idea behind this, this word hell, but for them, it's just a place where really bad people go when they die, and it's definitely not a place where good people go like themselves. For others, the concept of hell is plain, but it's just plainly comical. It's repulsive to them, perhaps. Or maybe it's just this idea that's non-existent. Yeah, those religious people out there, they believe these sorts of things, but like th this place doesn't really exist. When you die, it's just annihilation. You just become worm food. You're in the grave. It's just you lived your life, and then, then you're done. But if you scour the Gospels, if you look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, what you discover is that Jesus actually has a lot to say about the experience and the existence of hell. One such place is the parable that is before us, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Far from a random story about hell just shoved into Luke's gospel. Like this isn't Luke saying like, well, we've got to talk about hell sometime. Might as well just throw it in there at the end of Luke 16. This, this isn't what Luke is doing. The parable of the rich man and Lazarus is actually in the context of Luke 15 and Luke 16. It is actually the gracious, merciful invitation of Jesus. It's his compassion flowing from Christ one more time to talk to those who are hearing these things about his agenda of seeking and saving the lost. Will those who are saved be few? And he's like, no, it's going to be many. It's going to be people from north, south, east, west. There's going to be many at the eternal banquet, my royal salvation banquet for all eternity. But I want you to know that there is a way to make sure you do not end up at the banquet. It has everything to do with un repentance and that's what Jesus is going to press home right now again this is no random story this parable is yet one more response from Jesus in response to the Pharisees grumbling that we saw all the way back at the very beginning of Luke chapter 15 do you remember what Luke was telling us there he said the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus and the Pharisees and the scribes. What was their response? They what? They grumbled. 
Because Jesus had the audacity to receive sinners and eat with them. So if you remember, it was the Pharisees grumbling back at the beginning of chapter 15, which actually opens the door for Jesus to begin to teach in several parables. Parable of the lost sheep, parable of the lost coin, parable of the lost sons. And then last week what we saw was this parable of the dishonest manager. And now here is Jesus going to give one more parable to put like an ending thought to this idea of repentance versus unrepentance. So if you think about all that we've heard all the way back from Luke 15, and if you begin to just look at these various parables that Jesus has been teaching, and you look at them with the lens of repentance and faith in Jesus, then this parable about the reality of hell, it actually makes a whole lot of sense that Jesus just went where he went in regard to this parable. Just think about it. Having seen heaven's joy over one repenting sinner in the lost sheep in the lost coin, and having seen a perfect picture of true repentance in that lost younger son, and then having seen what a hardened, unrepentant heart looks like in response to Jesus' salvation agenda like we saw last week, the time has now come to wrestle with the question, where does unrepentance lead? Where does unrepentance lead? According to Jesus in the parable before us this morning, the sobering answer is unrepentance leads to eternal, irreversible, conscious torment separated from God in hell. If you go to Matthew 7, Jesus says the gate is wide and the road or the highway is broad that leads to destruction and because the gate is wide and the road broad that leads to destruction Jesus warns that the highway to hell is paved with unrepentance it's paved with unrepentance now I understand that this is an incredibly weighty topic this is not something to take lightly like I'm just not throwing around phrases up here to try to be cute This is a topic, admittedly, that we cannot fully unpack in one sermon like this morning, but walking with Jesus through this parable, we can begin our understanding of of these realities. And a truth that Jesus confirms, which moves us forward in our understanding, is that one day I will die. That's point number one. Jesus solidifies this truth that one day I will die. I will die. For every human being, there are two unavoidable dates set in stone for you, for me. It's these two dates. It's your birthday and it's your death day. You were born and you have a birthday and there is a day you're going to die. You have a birthday and you have a death day. Death is a great fact that everyone acknowledges, but very few seem to live in light of that fact. When I just said we all have a birthday and a death day, almost everyone's heads were nodding. Yes, we grasp that fact. But what Jesus is going to teach us and help us to wrestle with, because he is merciful and gracious and kind, and he knows that the reality of a future death day is meant to impact the decisions that we make here while we are alive, 
most of us will say, yeah, birthday, death day, I get it. It's just unavoidable. That's just part of what it means to be human. But the reality is, like the rich man in the parable, very few look down the corridors of time and knowing that their death day is coming, then begin to say, like, this means something for me right now that I need to wrestle with. Few do that. We see this truth begin to unfold as Jesus begins this parable. You can look in your copy of Scripture, Luke 16, verse 19. And what Jesus does, he begins by contrasting two men with just two different destinations. On one hand, you have a rich man who was clothed in purple, verse 19 He's clothed with fine linen. He feasted sumptuously every day. He's living the good life. Life is comfortable. It's easy. It's nice. On the other hand, you have a poor man. And in something that's very unique, Jesus very rarely, I don't know that he does it anywhere else, but he actually gives a name to one of the characters in his parable, a poor man named Lazarus. But in contrast to the rich man, Lazarus is clothed with sores. He doesn't have purple and fine linen. He desires to be fed with the food scraps from the rich man's table. And his condition is is so bad that even the dogs are coming and licking his sores. Because of his wealth, the rich man in the parable seemingly has all that he needs. I think most of us would look at the rich man and be like, the guy's got it made. He's doing great. He's moving in the right direction. The 401k is firing on all cylinders. He's got a nice house. The mortgage is great. It's two and a half car garage. He's doing what the American dream invites us all to consider. He is living the high life. He seemingly has all that he needs. While in contrast to him, you have Lazarus who seems to have nothing but misery. But even though these two men have glaringly different lives, the common denominator which unites them is that they both die. They both die. The author of Hebrews reminds us that it is appointed for man to die once. And then comes the judgment. That's Hebrews 9.27. And Jesus says these two men experienced what all experienced when they died and then went to go and meet their eternal fate as a result of the decisions they made while they were alive. You can see this in verse 22. Jesus continuing the parable says the poor man died. So no surprise there. This is the second date set in stone for all men. He was carried by the angels to Abraham's side The rich man also died, no surprise there. He was buried, no surprise there. But notice that he goes to Hades. Being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. So it's here in these verses, verses 22 and 23, that Jesus introduces the reality and the eternity of hell. The reality and eternity of hell. Notice Lazarus died and was carried to Abraham's side, he says. It's a very unique phrase. It shows up once in the New Testament from my research, and it's here in this parable. So it's a unique phrase, and Jesus is using this unique phrase. When he does so, he's referring to the eternal blessings of heaven that Lazarus now knows. 
Lazarus is counted among those who are right with God because just like Abraham, Lazarus believed the Lord and his faith was counted to him as righteousness. So Jesus is saying that while it is true that his earthly life, Lazarus's earthly life was marked by misery, he was not living his best life now. In a sense, though, he was because... He had faith. He was trusting in the promises of God. So while the earthly realm, it was not going good for him, his spiritual side of Lazarus was safe and secure, justified before the living God, trusting in the Lord God by faith, just like Abraham. And so that phrase, Abraham's side, is Jesus' way of using a phrase that would resonate with, like, well, who is the granddaddy of faith? Who is the one to whom he was justified, counted right with God because he took God at his word and believed as Abraham? And so Jesus is saying Lazarus is just like Abraham. That is why he's near Abraham right now. The rich man noticed, though, however, he died and he went to Hades. In the context of this parable, Hades is the place where the wicked dead go when they die. The place where they are tormented before the final judgment. And notice that's exactly what we see. Even though the rich man had every earthly thing someone could hope for, there was one thing he lacked. The one thing his money could not buy, and that was the salvation of his soul. And now his experience, look at the language there in verse 23, the language in verse 24. It's this language that his experience now, having made decisions in life to pursue money, to love the things of this world, to make stuff his God, this earthly decision has resulted in an eternal consequence. He is now in torment Verse 23, he is in anguish, in this flame, in hell. In the parable, what you need to know is that as Jesus is rolling out the distinction between the rich man and the poor man Lazarus, don't lose sight of the context. Remember, Jesus is teaching all these parables in light of who? The Pharisees grumbling all the way back in Luke 15. So Jesus is once again exposing hearts by saying there is a way to live life, there is a way to have some kind of religion that's actually going to lead you down the broad highway to hell. If your religion is, yeah, God, but also stuff. Remember, that's just what we talked about last week. When Jesus says you can't serve God and stuff, God and money, God and possessions, when you have a divided heart, it is possible to be a very religious person who says God is on the table. That is part of the ingredients of my life, but also on the table is this stuff that I also equally, if not more, love to where I am serving this stuff and I'm not serving God. God says it is possible to walk a a highway of religion that tries to squeeze love for God into love for stuff, and that's a broad highway that leads to hell. This rich man is a picture of the Pharisees whose hearts are right now being exposed. And we know they're being exposed because of what we saw last week when Jesus got done teaching about the dishonest manager and about what it means to use our stuff not to serve stuff, 
but to use our stuff to serve God, what was the response of the Pharisees again? They completely jeer and mock Jesus, and Luke says it's because they loved money. Think about it. The rich man doesn't give a lick about making friends for eternity by means of his wealth, just like the Pharisees. He is wholly given over to be a slave of money, just like the Pharisees. The lifestyle that thrills him is abominable in the sight of God, just like the Pharisees. The rich man in the parable is a picture. Thus, the rich man's experience of God's right condemnation for sins committed in this life stands as a picture, a warning to any who are going to try to live with divided hearts, trying to serve God and serve money, but ultimately serving money and loving stuff. Jesus says this experience of the rich man will be your experience if you're not careful and you die in unrepentance. Listen, here's a truth. Decisions made when alive have eternal consequences. Decisions made when alive have eternal consequences. This is what Abraham means when he says what he says in verse 25. Look in your copy of Scripture. Jesus speaking, telling this story, puts these words into Abraham, the character's mouth. Child, speaking to the rich man, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things. And Lazarus, in like manner, received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. In life, the rich man clearly decided to make money and material possessions his God. Stuff was the Lord of his life. And since he had chosen what he wanted in life, he must now live by his choice in death. What verse 25 warns against is the foolishness of thinking that we can live a present here and now life denying the God of the Bible, denying God's word, denying God's Savior, denying our need to repent and believe in the gospel of God and then somehow die and then go off to spend eternity with the very God we spent a lifetime denying. That's what verse 25 is warning against. If your life here now is spent denying the things of God, it is foolish to think that you will go off to spend an eternity with the very God you spent a lifetime denying. But you, we see this all over the place, do we not? Somebody whose life, in maybe very obvious ways like the younger son, or maybe in very closed, behind-door, hidden ways like the older son of Luke 15... In so many words, just you look at the fruit of their life, and the fruit of their life is this, did not love Jesus. But then that person dies, and what is Facebook, what is Instagram, TikTok, whatever social media is filled with, well, heaven's a little bit happier now. Heaven's rocking a little bit more because Uncle Joe has just died and went to heaven, but like nobody steps back and goes, like, well, Uncle Joe spent 80 years of his life denying Christ. It would actually be 
not only hell on earth, but hell for eternity for Uncle Joe to go and spend the rest of his life with Christ because he doesn't love Christ. They would be torture for him. So the decisions that he has made when he is alive, the rich man, they have eternal consequences. For the rich man, the punishment of hell is where his unrepentance has led him, and it will be where the Pharisees' unrepentance leads them if you are not careful. So again, this isn't Jesus going to the subject matter of hell so that he can beat people or guilt people or twist or turn the emotions and try to just get them to pray a prayer so they can just sort of squeak in through the door of heaven. No, this is Jesus recognizing that there are those created in the image of God sitting right in front of him who are choosing decidedly to say, we want not God. We want everything else but God. And with compassion, he's explaining to them, this has eternal consequences if you die Trusting and believing in these things. Friends, hell is not a dream. Hell is not a place without feeling. Just as repentant sinners will experience the full and forever bliss of heaven, so unrepentant sinners will experience the full and forever torment of hell. Hell is a place of intense suffering because it's the place where God is not. His mercy is absent. His his grace is gone. And being utterly removed from the grace of God only leaves misery and sorrow for an irreversible eternity. You see this in verse 26. Look at your copy of Scripture. He says, and besides all this, This is Abraham continuing to talk like right through Jesus. And besides all this, between us and you, notice this phrase, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. That phrase, a great chasm has been fixed, it highlights the finality of heaven and hell. Decisions made when alive not only have eternal consequences, but decisions made when alive have irreversible consequences. Once you're in heaven, you're in heaven. Once you're in hell, you're in hell. In death, there is no spiritual change of address. This is God's word to us. And the challenge for any and all of us is to wrestle with the question, do I believe God's word? Like, do I believe what is being said here, what is being taught to us? Remember, Jesus is talking to Pharisees, walking the highway to hell. They are sin dead. They are unrepentant. It's true that the highway to hell is paved with unrepentance, but it's also true that the highway to heaven is paved with repentance. And according to Jesus, the way that someone comes to genuine repentance, genuine faith unto salvation is not through great miracles, not through great experiences, but it's actually by believing God's Word. By taking your Bible... And saying, along with Peter in Second Peter chapter 1, that everything I need for life and godliness is right here from Genesis to Revelation. 
Everything I need for living my earthly life, it's found in Genesis to Revelation. Everything I need to know for eternal life is found in Genesis to Revelation. Everything I need to know to walk in this life now as a result of the eternal life that has been gifted to me, holiness is given to me here in Genesis to Revelation. You see, here's a truth. God's Word is sufficient to warn anyone of their need for a Savior. God's Word is sufficient to warn anyone of their need for a Savior. Hearing that he will not receive relief for his suffering, notice what the rich man does, starting in verse 27. The rich man makes a request that Lazarus be sent from Abraham's side in this parable to go and warn his brothers. He's got five brothers. They're still alive. He's dead. He sees where his consequences have gone. So he's like, Father Abraham, can't, like Lazarus, like he obviously made the right decision in life. He sought you. He placed his faith in you, Lord God. So Abraham, can, can you like dispatch Lazarus to go and like do something miraculous? That's this whole idea down in verse 31, this rising from the dead. Like, can you bring him back and maybe he can go like knock on the window real quick late at night and like whisper into my brother's ears and tell them, hey guys, heaven is real, hell is real. Like, you don't want to go where your brother went. It's torment, it's anguish, it's flame, it's, it's forever. Wake up, guys. And then like just disappear like out of, out of thin air. Can you do this? Because I don't want my brothers to come into this place of torment that I've found. But notice verse 29. Notice where Abraham's response presses home the sufficiency and the importance of God's word. These brothers, and really anyone else for that matter, notice they have Moses and they have the prophets. That's the response. That is, they have God's word. They have their Bibles. They have the law. They have the prophets. They have the Old Testament. And Jesus is saying that these Pharisees, guys, you need to wake up because you have in front of you the plain evidence of what will happen to you for eternity if you continue to remain in your unrepentance. This is plain to you from the Scriptures. God's Word reveals the way of salvation. Now, the rich man doesn't like the answer. Notice. Verse 30, and he said, he being the rich man, no, Father Abraham, he's not going to put up with this. No, no, no. We need miracles. We need something supernatural. We need a dead man from the grave to come, and that will be the, the sign. That will be the wonder. That will be the thing that will convince them. The rich man denies the truth that the word of God is sufficient to expose my heart, that the word of God is sufficient to open my eyes, that the word of God is sufficient to lead me to see my need for a Savior whose name is Jesus. He, he doesn't want any. He's convinced. If someone goes to my brothers from the dead, notice the phrase, they will repent. There's that repent theme right there. If someone's going to repent and not walk the broad highway to hell and walk the narrow road, striving to enter through the door of Jesus Christ for eternity, we need miracle signs and wonders, this man is saying. But Jesus doesn't budge. Verse 31. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. 
Has someone risen from the dead? Jesus. There are many unconvinced. Don't want anything to do with that Bible. Don't want anything to do with its truths. Don't want anything to do with what it says. Don't want anything to do with what it demands of me. Don't want anything to do with what it says about who I am as a sinner, my need to repent, my need to believe. Don't want anything to do with it. The greatest miracle of all time is the very first Easter Sunday when Jesus came blowing out of the grave, defeating Satan, sin, and death. You can go back in history. There's just irrefutable secular historians who recorded this fact. It's a fact that can be proven and believed. And yet many are like, remain hardened in unrepentance. You see, for those who refuse to take God's word seriously, no miraculous sign will be enough to convince them of their need for a savior. Miracles alone are never enough to persuade a person to come to God in repentance. It's as we come to God, humble with a heart that is open, ready, willing to receive like a child, arms out, palms up, and that posture of receiving, saying, Lord, I think life and godliness can be found in here. I think the answer for my restless soul can be found in here. I think the reason why my life is so miserable, even though, like the rich man, I've sought sex, I've sought money, I've sought stuff, I've sought houses, I've sought relationships, I've sought to live the good life as best as I know how to pursue it, but my heart is still empty, my heart is still restless. Lord, before you I come with maybe the microscopic, smallest mustard seed faith, and the the confession of the heart is, I think life is found in here. Help me. And then God's word explodes alive. Some of us, many of us can say this. There was a time when I was growing up and this was just ink on paper. These were just books and it it meant nothing. There was no life here. And then the spirit of God descends and moves and works in your life. And all of a sudden, this stuff is real. All of a sudden, you care. All of a sudden, these things are, are being tasted and to be seen like this makes sense of the world around me. This makes sense of the man and the woman in the mirror like life and godliness, holiness is being found here in these words because my unrepentant heart is being warmed. My hard, unrepentant heart is being broken by the hammer of God's word and it's exposing that life. It's not, it's not that we go to this and go, like the Bible specifically is like where we find life. That's the accusation laid at the feet in John 8 where it says you go to the scriptures because you think you find life in them. Like they just think knowing the scriptures is where life is found. Like, no, 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 it's the scriptures do this. They lift our head to see Christ. And Christ is where life is found. This is what Jesus is teaching here in this parable. Jesus isn't saying, go and give yourself over to more Bible studies so that you can be a fathead, and by having a fathead full of knowledge, like somehow salvation is found there. That's not what he's saying. The scriptures are God's gift to us because they do this. 
wow, that looks like it's true of me, and that looks like it's true of God, and the Holy Spirit is confirming this in my life. And it's like if the scriptures grow arms, what they do is they grab us by the head, and they lift our eyes to Christ. They turn our eyes to the cross and go, this is your hope of salvation. It's Christ and Christ alone. You see, unrepentant hearts hardened by sin need the hammer of God's word. This is imagery the prophet Jeremiah uses talking about the word of God. So this is why we preach the word of God. This is why we counsel from the word of God. This is why we evangelize from the word of God. This is why we craft liturgies that revolve around the word of God. God's word is the two-edged sword that pierces hearts, opens eyes to see that no one can come to the Father in salvation unless they see Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. The way of salvation is found in God's word alone, and how we respond to that message of salvation will dictate our eternal destiny in heaven or hell. Boom, parable done. Like, no, I mean, like, right? It just wraps up. I think what Jesus does, at least in my mind's eye, is he looks at the crowd. He looks at those around him. And the question that is then implied is this question. Who would you like to be in the story? Who would you like to be in the story? Would you like to be the, like the rich man? Man, I want nice stuff. I want the good life. I want easy living. Or do you want to be the poor man? Striving to enter the narrow door, obeying Jesus' invitation to come to his banquet, self-denying, daily dying, wholehearted following, sin, repenting. Who, who do you want to be? This is the invitation before us. You see, one man had heaven on earth. He was living his best life now, but it was temporary comfort and anguish for eternity. Who do you want to be? The other man had hell on earth, was not living his best life now, but it was temporary anguish and comfort for eternity. I think some of us, the invitation dangles here because we have this, just this temptation, this pull to go, man, like, I don't know, a little extra cash would be nice, the easier life would be nice, the good stuff would be nice, the material possessions would be nice, the relational upgrades would be nice, the fatty 4OK would be nice, would be nice, would be nice, would be nice. Many look at this scenario and go, man, give it to me. Rich life, rich man living, I, I, that's what I want. I want good now, and I don't care about eternity. I think the challenge that Jesus is laying out before us is this. It could mean that your pursuit of Jesus won't be all the good things, the frills, the bells, and the whistles, and all the stuff in this life. It might mean suffering for me, striving to enter. It might mean you don't get the job upgrade at work. It might mean that because you're going to look at your stuff in such a way where you want to make friends for eternity, you're going to give in a way where it pinches your wallet just a little bit so that while your rich neighbor who's living for himself is using his cash for himself and is living in a way that you would sort of like to live at times if you're being honest with yourself, but you recognize that, man, this he's using God's stuff as his God. I want to use God 
God's stuff to serve God, and that just means certain things for me. This is the overflow of salvation in my life. This is where I want to go. The question is, like, who do you want to be here? And then recognize that means something for the way we live in everyday life. Yeah? Who would you like to be? Jesus is wrapping up this section on salvation. The questions, I think, roll to us like this. Lord, will those who are saved be many? Jesus says, don't, don't fret about the many. Ask this question, will those who are saved be you? Are you striving to enter through the narrow door of Jesus? Are you receiving the invitation to come and banquet with Christ for eternity? Is wholehearted following Christ, denying self, dying daily, following Him, renouncing all, is this idea that I once was lost, but now I am found. I am a sinner that once was blind, but now I see I have been sought and found by Christ, and the overflow of that in my life is me coming to God with an open, open hand. Is that, is that you? If it's not, to recognize it could be you today. It could be you today. Most of us here would probably say, yeah, that's me then the response time that we're about to go into, my encouragement would be, would you just praise God? Because you didn't find yourself in that spot because you're brilliant at religious stuff. You found yourself in that spot because the God of Luke 15 pursued you with an unabandoned love, sought you, bought you, and made you his own. Praise God in this time of response. But for some of us, it might just be like, yeah, I don't know that I can say those things. Know this, that today could be the day of salvation for you, praise God. And this time of response could look something as simple as this. Asking the question, have you repented of your sin and placed your faith in Christ? And your response is no. I haven't. Pastor Jonathan, I don't know what repenting looks like. It could look something like this. It could look like during this time we're about to go into you having a conversation with Jesus that looks like this. I'm going to try to model for you right now what repentance could look like, okay? It could look like this. Jesus, I am a sinner. I am not trying to hide this. I am a sinner. Because I'm a sinner, that means I'm far from you. And if I remain in my sin, I will get what I deserve, which is an eternal separation from you. But, thank you for Jesus doing what had to be done on the cross so that eternal life could be made mine. Jesus, I accept your gift. Amen. Notice it was just you recognizing I was going like this, Hellbound towards sin. Jesus, you are opening my eyes to see right now, so I'm turning from this and I'm casting myself on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what repentance looks like. And it can be a conversation with Jesus as, sens- as, si- as simple as I was running after sin. I know where that goes, but Christ, I'm trusting in you right now. All my hope of salvation is in you. 
And Jesus says the repenting heart has become a repenting heart because the God of the universe is drawing you. Open your eyes. You see, repent, believe. Okay? Let's pray. Jesus, would you work in power and would you work in might today? Lord, would you help the realities of heaven and hell to be real to us? And I guess what I mean by that, Father, is not just where we just give mental assent. Like, yeah, I'll nod my head to that. I think that's some like Bible religious-y kind of stuff. But to, like, to feel the weight, I guess, is what I'm asking, Father, of those, of those realities. And that you would then help us go, well, if that is true, and that's a future reality, What does that mean for me in the here and now? For those of us who have repented, turned from sin, turned to Christ, and see and trust and are resting in Christ for salvation, would you turn our hearts during this time of the Lord's Supper and this time of song into worshiping hearts? Would you help us to blow the roof off this place in joy at the thought that God has saved me? But if there are some here this morning who are struggling with these things and they're wrestling with these truths, would you just help them? Lead them one step closer. Or maybe someone's here this morning and they just do need to like, go find someone and say, like, I'm, I, I've repented, I believe, I've prayed, I've asked Jesus to save me. And he saved me today on October 22nd, 2023, that that would be true of some here today. Lord, however you're leading and working in our lives, would you help us to walk in obedience to you during this time? It's in your name, Jesus, I pray. Amen.